our series working our way through the book of Exodus that we've called Rescued. And uh, today we're going we're gonna to do several things. We're going we're gonna to take, a, a, we're going to do a sidebar where we actually talk about how the book of Exodus was formed, or at least we're going to look at the prevailing theory for how the book of Exodus came to be compiled. But uh, more than that, kind of overarching today, we're going to be asking, um, we're not really going to be answering because the answer to this is above our pay grade, but we're going to be asking, uh, why isn't life easy? <laughs> why, why, are, why are there difficulties? And we learned something about that through the whole story of the Exodus, but today's passage is a, is a good time to kind of back up a few feet and ask that question from a bigger perspective. We're going to be uh, picking up the story with Moses. He's returned back to Egypt, and we are in Exodus chapter 5. And we're going to do this morning a, a pretty long section. We're doing all of Exodus 5 and first eight verses of Exodus 6. We're going to advance the story quite a bit. We're going to get into the point where there's, you know, the serious dialogue between uh, the beginning of the serious dialogue between um, Moses and Pharaoh. So Exodus 5, we'll begin with verse 1, and I've asked Althea, if she would, to read it for us this morning. So uh, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're looking at Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this, it was, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and, it will, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with the straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, and I pray especially for those of us who are here and those of us who are watching now or later. If we are in the midst of struggle, if we are experiencing uh, you know, just life difficulty or suffering right now, I pray that you would speak into that. With yourself, we, we, uh, God, it's our tendency in those situations to, to look for answers, and even if we get answers, we, they're not satisfying. You're the only thing that satisfies. So this morning we pray for you, your presence and your voice. Speak to us. Even today, Lord, we, we, we're just advancing this great story, but you are able, even through this, to speak through to us, and we pray that you would. We would open our hearts, our, our lives to you this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Who is the Lord? I think Pharaoh is kind of asking that in two ways, right? First, derisively, who is the Lord? But he's also asking that, like, who is the Lord? You know, I'm familiar with lots of gods. I don't know this, this Yahweh. That's the word, Yahweh. Moses is using God's proper name here. All right, let's review. Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's court, you may remember. He had been schooled in the sophistication and luxury of upper echelon Egyptian society, and yet he identified with the culture of his biological parents, who were, by the way, slaves of that upper echelon Egyptian society. And as a result, uh, Moses one day is walking through the field, and he sees an Egyptian field supervisor beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses kills the man. And as a result of that encounter, Pharaoh wanted to have Moses killed, probably because he knows the bias in in Moses' heart. So Moses fled for his life into the Midian desert where he met and ultimately married a Midianite woman named Zipporah. They had a family together while Moses was living with and working for his father-in-law Jethro. And this was his reality for half a lifetime until... God interrupted his reality and spoke to him quite literally through a burning bush that was not being consumed. And God told Pharaoh, God told Moses to go confront Pharaoh and and to demand that Pharaoh let the Hebrew slaves leave and return, live their lives in their homeland, the land of their birth. God also told him that Pharaoh would not listen to him, at least not initially. So, Moses returned to Egypt, he reunited with his biological brother Aaron, and he told Aaron and the leaders of the Israelite community what God had told him. Incredibly, they believed him, and there seems to even even been something of a spiritual renewal among them, and that means the stage is now set for this famous drama between Moses and Pharaoh. But look, through this whole thing, as we're going to go over this the next few weeks, and you, if you haven't been with us, if you've rarely been to church, you, you know something about this and the plagues and uh, this whole drama. Let's not forget that the, we, need, we need to remember who the real combatants were here in this drama. We have a tendency to think that this might be Moses versus Pharaoh, or, or Israel versus Pharaoh, or even Israel versus Egypt, but those are not the real combatants. The real combatants here, and this will become clearer and clearer to us, the real combatants are Yahweh and Egypt's gods. So in verse 3, Moses began with this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so they may hold a festival for me out in the wilderness. And he ended up asking for a three-day spiritual weekend away, a spiritual retreat for the entire Israelite community. You know, I read in a couple of, somebody uh, emailed me this, in, uh, this week and asked about this. I, I, I read in a couple of sources that this was the typical style of ancient Near Eastern favor asking. This is what I mean. You know, you wonder why Moses said, can we have a weekend away? I mean, he's really demanding their freedom. But Uh, Evidently, this was typical favor asking. In a negotiation, it was typical for them, as it is for us today, to ask for more than you wanted, Uh, you know, a higher bargaining position. So you hope eventually the person that you're bargaining with will compromise and you'll compromise up to what your real 
request is. But, but in a favor-asking situation, evidently, it was typical for them to ask for less, maybe even much less, than you ultimately were hoping for. And Pharaoh's response makes it clear that he had absolutely no intention of honoring Moses' request, even for a weekend away, and he probably knew that Moses was really asking for much more than that. Plus, in his answer, Pharaoh showed just how dependent the whole Egyptian economy was on uh, Israelite slave labor. So Pharaoh went in the exact opposite direction. Not only no weekend away, but now your work is going to get much harder. It seems like this might have been the pattern for the Egyptian rulers. Whenever there were signs of trouble in the Hebrew community, the Pharaohs responded by increasing the pressure. Uh, That's what he does here. He says, require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice for our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to those lies. So let's pick up the story in verse 10 and find out just how he made it harder. So I'm going to read 10 in the next few verses. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. I've added to the burden. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Okay, we'll stop there. Uh, Before we go any further, here's our sidebar. Um, I want to introduce you this morning. uh, Some of you will love this, but this is good information for all of us, even even for those of us who uh, go to sleep during this kind of explanation. I want to introduce you to an academic explanation of how the first five books of the Bible were formed, because this explanation has been enormously influential, whether you and I recognize it or not. These books, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are sometimes called the Law of God, they're sometimes called the Pentateuch, they're sometimes called uh, the Torah, they're sometimes called the Books of Moses. Well, in the 19th century, the 1800s, There was a German scholar named Julius Wellhausen, and he developed a theory about the formation of the books of Moses. As I said, uh, uh, it it became very, very influential. He believed that these books had four main sources. They came from four different schools of thought, if you will. There was the Yahwist source. And Yahweh, you may remember, is the particular name that God gave to Moses of himself in Exodus, Exodus 3. And this source, whenever it was writing, it would use the name Yahweh. There was the Elohist source. Elohim is the general word for God in Hebrew. There was the priestly source. And this was material that was written by the school of priests. And then there was the Deuteronomist source who wrote the book of Deuteronomy and small parts of the other four books. That's why this theory is sometimes called JEDP, or the Documentary Hypothesis, because it claims that the books of Moses were really a compilation of many different documents 
which were written by several different sources from four different schools of thought. Are you following me so far? This means, of course, that Moses did not write these books. In fact, they were written, according to the documentary hypothesis, many centuries after Moses. They were written probably for three reasons. One, to simply compile the oral myths into something tangible. They were also written, secondly, to codify Israelite worship, to kind of put it down so everybody knew what to do. But more importantly, they were written to justify Israel's place in the world and their sense that they were somehow special. And this became the prevailing explanation of how the books of Moses were formed throughout most of the 20th and now into the 21st century. Actually, uh, beginning in the 1970s, there were serious academic challenges to the documentary hypothesis, but they came in the form of even more sources having been written much later than even Wellhausen had suggested. Here's why this matters. If Moses didn't write this history, then it's, it's probably not true, or probably not all true, not literally true. It's probably part truth, part preachery embellishment, part guesswork, part patriotic overstatement, part theological sermonizing and justification. And if this was written 500 years after Moses, as Wellhausen suggested, or 1,000 years after Moses, as more modern scholarship is suggesting, then these are not actual events we're talking about. These are, these are religious concepts, that, mythology that helps kind of form the, the basis of the, the psyche of Israel, but not really a true history. And this this is the school of thought that has dominated biblical scholarship over the last 150 years, at least in the West. That means the overwhelming majority, and here's why, here's why it matters, the overwhelming majority of people who have been trained in seminaries, like I was, seminary is a, a uh, master's degree program that you go through after college where you, you learn uh, and many pastors do this, where you, you learn you know, how to study the Bible and, and the, some of the mechanics of running a church. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people who've been trained in seminaries have been trained in this school of thought, at least in the United States and Europe. So seminaries have been pumping out pastors that have gone to Presbyterian and Methodist and Episcopalian and Catholic churches all over the Western Hemisphere for the last 150 years, who have believed that the books of Moses were formed through something like the process described by the documentary hypothesis. And they have therefore not believed that these stories are actual history. And that dramatically changes how we think about them, doesn't it? I strongly believe that it's no surprise that these churches have slowly shrunk in size and influence over the course of that same period of history. And that's a fact, by the way. They have shrunk. And, that's, and I believe that their impact socially and spiritually has been reduced as a direct result of their view of the Bible. This, this tends not to be the case in Africa and Korea 
and places like India, by the way, but in the West, very much so. The influence of the documentary hypothesis is not felt as strongly in other parts of the world, and often those churches, frankly, tend to be more vibrant. Well, Ed, how do you respond to the documentary hypothesis? You're going to hear little pieces of this uh, over the course of many weeks. I'll, I'll, I'll tiptoe into this. At, at a later date, I'll even give you a fuller explanation of why they came up with this, because this is not ill-meaning people. And, and there are academic reasons why they began to challenge and test the text, but I have to tell you, the, the prevailing influence for why people end up believing the documentary hypothesis is they're trying to explain how in the world these stories came about because this stuff couldn't have literally happened. I mean, they couldn't have literally divided a sea, so there's got to be some explanation for where this came from. And when you begin your academic search with a, a bias against the supernatural, you find what you're looking for. So how do I respond to the documentary hypothesis? I don't believe this hypothesis explains how these books were written and compiled. I do believe there may have been several scribes, even a small college of scribes and, and compilers and editors, but I believe they all worked under Moses' supervision and direction. And there are a, a minority of modern scholars who agree with this perspective, by the way. I won't take the time today going into the reasons, as I said, for the development or the arguments against, except I, I, I want to say one thing today. I, I'm going to give one objection to the documentary hypothesis. Look, it's not a slam dunk case, but it's worth considering. The details of the story of the Exodus are often striking in their accuracy. Let me explain, because today's text provides a couple of examples, which is why I'm bringing this up. For example, the description in this passage of the way the Israelite slave work was managed is consistent with what we find in literature outside of the Bible. The existence of Egyptian overlords who commanded Israelite foremen who then oversaw this massive slave effort. This division of management is confirmed in outside sources. And if this was written a thousand years after Moses, how did they know? Plus, the way the bricks are spoken of here is very consistent with the time and with the Egyptian technology of the time. Egypt had been largely deforested by the time of Moses. The forests in Egypt had been cut down. That means that large kilns where, where strong bricks could be fired by massive amounts of wood burning, uh, it was hard to come by. So at this point in history, the most important buildings were all built with stonework, like the, the massive government buildings and the pyramids, for example. But brick was still the uh, prevailing building material throughout Egypt. And to make the bricks strong enough, since they couldn't fire them in kilns, they had to uh, air dry them in the sun. To make them strong enough, they would fortify them with straw in much the same way that we use rebar to fortify concrete. Again, how did these authors know this? Again, as I said, look, that, that's not an unanswerable challenge. It's not like those who favor the documentary hypothesis haven't thought of this, but it's noteworthy. Don't miss this. It's noteworthy that there are there aren't lots of striking anachronisms in this text. An anachronism is when you put something, for, for example, in a text that's from a later period in time. So, you know, that 
that didn't really belong in that text or that text isn't authentic. This text seems to get all of the details right. For example, and I want you to look at this. Imagine verse 13. So look up top. That's verse 13, the way it's actually written. Imagine if verse 13 read like this. The slave drivers kept pressing them saying, complete the work required of you before you clock out. Well, then it would be very easy for scholars to say, wait a minute, clock out? That phrase wasn't used till the 20th century. Moses didn't write this. There aren't anachronisms like that in this text. Instead, this story presents what seems to be a very accurate picture of what 1400s BC Egypt looked like. We'll have more to say about this in coming weeks, but it seems to me the best explanation for the formation of the books of Moses is that Moses oversaw a group of people who helped him write and compile the actual history that he knew about and lived through. And if that's the case, and if these stories are actual events, then wow, that's why we're still talking about them. We serve an awesome God. Back to the story. Remember Moses' return to Egypt. He's convinced the leaders of the Israelite community that God has literally spoken to him and that God intends to rescue them from the grip of Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh and they've delivered their great speech. And Pharaoh has utterly rejected their request. In fact, Pharaoh was ticked off and he's made things much worse for them. Their lives have gotten immeasurably harder. So the Israelite foreman took their case directly to Pharaoh, who responded to them by saying, in the next section, responded to them by saying that they're lazy, they've got to work harder, now get back to work. And these foremen then went and found Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, and I want you to see this, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is verse 21. So you notice here in this verse that the foremen don't really express any lack of faith. They're not saying, what is God doing? Apparently, they hadn't actually discarded their newfound faith in Yahweh, but they must have thought that Moses and Aaron had misrepresented the case, or maybe they've handled it very, very badly, or maybe they'd gotten it wrong. And therefore, it must be that Moses and Aaron had disobeyed God, because look at their response. May the Lord look upon you and judge you. I mean, it seems that they're convinced that Moses and Aaron needed judgment because the nation's God, Yahweh, would never let such a thing happen. This couldn't be his will. It must be that Moses and Aaron blew it. I mean, why would God allow things to get worse? What? Surely, if God is God, when we decide to turn things over to him, when we we try to do what he wants us to do, and we try to get it right, surely things will go well for us. (coughs) And so, Moses, in turn, took his complaint to God because he was also wondering how in the world this could happen. Why did things just get worse? That can't be your will. What's going on? What kind of God are you? One more time, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as we hear Moses' complaint and God's response. Why is life so hard, God? Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? That's not what we agreed to. Is this why you sent me? 
Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. This whole thing was about rescue. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I didn't make myself known fully to them, only to you, Moses. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians, I've heard the groaning whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore to, uh, with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. You may be seated. All right, let's rehash that discussion to make sure we get it. Moses, colon, why God? Why are you doing this? How could you act like this? Or better yet, how could you not act like this? God, colon, look, Moses, this is who I am and have always been. Remember, I've shown you more about myself even than your forebears. And I've heard the cry of my people, remember? And based on who I am, I'm going to answer their cry. I'm still going to do what I promised to do. I will break the yoke of slavery. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will rescue you, and I will be your God. Implication, colon, trust me. Why isn't life easy? Why doesn't it all work out? Maybe even worse, why do things sometimes seem to get worse just when we're trying to do better? Why doesn't God iron all of that out? I mean, we turn in his direction, we genuinely want to do the right things, and, and things get worse. How does that make any sense? Obviously, this question falls into the larger category of why is there suffering in the world? And the full answer to that question is way above my pay grade, and frankly, above anyone's pay grade. But as I said in the beginning, the story of Exodus speaks into that question, so let's speak a bit about it this morning. First of all, let's acknowledge that there have been many attempts to explain suffering through the centuries. These attempts generally fall into four categories. We'll list those this morning. First of all, uh, some have explained suffering by saying suffering is random and meaningless, just like the universe is random and meaningless. This tends to be the answer by honest atheists. Second answer often offered is suffering is a myth. This is the explanation given by Buddhism. Suffering is not real, it's just the result of our desires, and if you get beyond desire, then you get beyond suffering. A third explanation that's often offered is suffering is a punishment for sin. You do wrong, and you get punished with suffering. This is often the explanation offered by both Judaism and Islam, and there's some truth in this. And the fourth explanation that's often given is suffering is a test of faith. This is where God finds out if your faith is real. And this is also offered often by Judaism and Islam. And there is 
a little bit of truth in this as well. But the story of Exodus offers hints at a very different perspective on suffering. Uh, the next time you read the book of Exodus, perhaps read it with that in mind, with the idea of uh, understanding more about suffering and the reason for it. And Jesus' teaching and ministry brought this new perspective into even more clarity. As a result, Jesus' followers have tended to view suffering in an entirely different light. They have seen that, first of all, suffering is a consequence of sin. Not, not a punishment, really, but a byproduct. Here's what I mean. In a general sense, of course, God didn't create a world of suffering. But human freedom led to human rejection of God. And as a result of that rejection, the world is now off kilter. And, and sin and its consequences now dominate our world, and suffering is one of those consequences. So we live on this planet, we live in that world, and we live underneath that umbrella. So there's suffering as a consequence of sin in the world. Sometimes we participate in that and suffer those consequences as well. Secondly, followers of Jesus do see suffering as a test of our faith. That's consistent. But not so much to see how we do, but it's a test of our faith in the sense that it, it purifies our faith. Like, like fire purifies gold. And through the story of Exodus, we will see this happen for the Israelites, and I want us to watch this. I will refer to this again. The Israelite people will become something that they would never have been able to become had they not experienced suffering. Thirdly, for this reason, the followers of Jesus have tended to recognize that suffering is a tool of sanctification. Now, sanctification is a fancy word that means holification or making us holier and holier, more and more like God. In other words, God uses, us, uses suffering to make us more and more like himself. And finally, through suffering, we identify with Christ and he with us. Look, if you're suffering this morning, if you're, if you're in the midst of a, a really difficult time, one of those times where you're saying, why, God? I know this doesn't answer your heart cry. But leaning into this perspective is the work that you and I must do in suffering. We often spend our time when we're suffering pressing for answers and pressing to figure it out. And the work for you and I, emotionally and spiritually, is the work of leaning into that, this perspective and resisting that press and resisting the worry, but leaning into this. The press and the worry, they come, they're natural. We resist that, and we lean into this perspective. We lean into him. Pressing to find the answer is not our work, and it will not satisfy. We will not be satisfied even if we find the answer. He alone satisfies. Often the deepest experience of God somehow comes through suffering, and many of you have experienced that. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he reminds us that this is really the only, the only pathway to abundant resurrection life. Look at this verse from Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, if we are children, and we are, we're children of God, that's his point. If we're children, then we're also heirs. We're going to inherit. We're co-heirs with Christ. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. This reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. This is not going to be on the screen. I want you just to listen to this, especially if you've never heard this teaching before. Listen to Jesus' words. Jesus said in Matthew, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I've taught before here about Jesus' upside-down kingdom. He has a completely upside-down perspective from the way the world generally operates. The kingdom Jesus introduced identifies leadership with service. This is a kingdom where to give is to receive. This is a kingdom where the way to live is to die. Well, in this upside-down kingdom, part of the path to happiness goes through the valley of sorrows. This is part of what we learn from the story of Exodus. We don't get all of the answers that we want when we want them, but we can trust him because, and, and I, I do want you to see this. I'm going to give us a, just a list of things, a list of becauses. We can trust him because God is good. He remembers us and he's faithful because God is working in our lives always, always. And in this work, he ultimately makes all things work together for good. Even our suffering, even the death of loved ones, even our own deaths. And in that process of making all things work together for good, sometimes things appear to get worse before they get better. That's reality, and you've experienced it. So in the midst of it, we have to remember the first part of this list, and the work is leaning into that. I've used this illustration before here at Gateway, but it's one of my favorite illustrations. I heard a pastor say years ago, he was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And uh, he lived in Hawaii and pastored a church in Hawaii, huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And uh, this was in the 90s when the Cowboys were actually good and meant something in the NFL. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so... Every Sunday afternoon was about uh, Cowboys football. But always, because he pastored in Hawaii, the game was already over by the time he got home from church. And he couldn't, st I mean, it would make him furious. It would ruin his day. He'd be mad at everyone, especially his family. He couldn't stand it if he heard the score on the way home. So everybody in his church knew not to say anything to him about the Cowboys score. And he, nobody could turn the radio on on the way home from church. He taped the game every Sunday, and uh, then he would watch the game. And he realized during those years, uh, he just, he'd become a nervous wreck. He, several times, he, he honestly felt like he was having a heart attack toward the end of Cowboys games. So uh, a new season came along, and he decided to completely change his perspective. And in the new season, he decided that he was going to hear the Cowboys score before he left church every Sunday and then go home and watch. And he said he found out that watching Cowboys football, because they were good at this time, remember, watching Cowboys football games after that was pure pleasure. He was never nervous. He was never stressed. 
He was never pressing because he knew the ending. So even if they were down late in the fourth quarter, he wasn't worried. He wasn't nervous. He knew the final score. You and I know the ending. So we don't need to be worried. The work for us is pressing in to this, not figuring out the answers. Why did this happen? Most of the time, even if we get an answer, it won't satisfy. He alone satisfies. We know how the story ends. We know how our story ends. So the work for you and I is always pressing in, remembering God is good. God remembers us. And he's faithful, even when it doesn't seem like it. Here's our groanings. God is working in our lives, always. And he ultimately makes all things work together for our good. That doesn't mean all things are good. When they had to go gather, the, they themselves had to gather their straw and still keep up the brick quota. This is not a good thing. But ultimately, God makes all things work together for our good. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. Lord, this morning we choose to lean into your completely true story and to lean into you. We lean in today to your goodness. In the midst of our questions, we lean in to your goodness, to your faithfulness. That's the work we want to do today. We lean in to the recognition that you're ultimately making all things work together for our good. We lean in because we know the end of the story. We know that eventually think things are going to get even worse, and we know ultimately Pharaoh will run them out of Egypt, and then will regret it and chase them. Once again, they'll worry and wonder, why God? And then you will split a sea and sink Pharaoh's army. And Lord, they will wander in a desert and question you again. Again and again, they will grumble and complain. Once again, you will deliver them and lead them in the promised land and turn them into a great and mighty nation where your name could be glorified. You're doing that work in us and this morning, we believe, we declare, we know the end of the story. And if on Wednesday we have forgotten, remind us today we declared, we believe. And we lean into that.